Hi, thanks for joining us for this message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. We pray that you are blessed by it. If you'd like to know more about Red Church and its ministries, or if you'd like to support us financially, you can find out more by heading to redchurch.org.au. My name's Mark, uh, and we are a few weeks now into a series uh, that's going to go for a little while, and it's called, the, it's called Platforms to Pillars. Looking at the book of Exodus, but also this idea that in many ways there's this framing that society has for how we should live our lives, which is of the platform. And I'm contrasting that with, I think, is the biblical call of how we should live our lives, which is to be a pillar. And we've looked at different ways that the platform manifests in our lives and the origins of different platforms. We looked a couple of weeks ago at the dais, one of the first platforms that appear in the world, which is something that kings and queens, emperors, Caesars, pharaohs would sit upon which projected them above other people. And I argued that actually in our world today, we don't have, well, King Charles III was placed on a pillar, the official head of Australia of Australia. But really in our culture, everyone has a kind of platform that we see ourselves existing on a dais. We also looked at the podium. The podium is a kind of raised platform that emerged in ancient Greece in which people thought that by standing higher than others, by getting the most people to hear their message, that through great ideas and content, they can change the world. And that's very present. But the whole time we're contrasting with the reality that God builds a different kind of structure and he builds it in us. The temple is not rebuilt after it's destroyed in 70 AD. And the scriptures, the New Testament speaks of the new structure that God builds in the world is a living temple. It's not made of bricks and mortar, but it's actually made of human beings, flesh and blood, soul and spirit. Uh, Those who follow Jesus then become the pillars in his living temple. And so telling this story, we're also telling the story of the deliverance that needs to happen because actually the culture of the platform is one which is actually quite exploitative. I think a lot of people are feeling the pressure of it. And so the story of Exodus is is a journey from exploitation to discovering the presence of God in the wilderness. And so this week we're going to look at Exodus 3 verse 1. One of the real key points in the Exodus story where Moses encounters the presence of God in the wilderness. And I'm going to read it. Exodus 3 verse 1 says this. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock. He's a shepherd at this point in time after being an Egyptian member of the aristocracy. He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. 
So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. A little bit of a Bible nerdy thing. Uh, it's actually probably more like, like a, a syrup um, that comes from uh, plants than, than bee honey. You can share that at your next dinner party. Um, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Pezzarites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I've seen the way that the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Sometimes we're going to ask the question, and in a series like this, when we talk about pillars, me, uh, it's someone else in this room. Who? Me? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You will worship God on this mountain. So we're going to come back to this, but I'm going to introduce another kind of platform. I know so much about platforms now and their history. It's exciting. There's more to come. So we've done dais. We've done podium. The Latin for podium is pulpitum. It's where pulpit comes from. But this week, I want to talk about another platform, the stage. The stage. Now, I want to talk about this by talking about an issue that happens in the Apostle Paul's life. Apostle Paul, as he's spreading the gospel, the church is new, and he says this line in 2 Corinthians 11.5, where Paul makes this really revealing comment. Now, this is in the midst of a dispute that's happening, and I don't want to dig into that dispute. I want to just pull on a little word that he says here, where he says this, I do not think that I am in the least inferior to those super apostles. So in the early church, there's Paul, who is pretty significant, probably after Jesus, the most significant figure in the New Testament. Uh, and he's talking about super apostles, really interesting. He says, I may indeed be untrained as a speaker, but I do have knowledge. What is going on here? Paul's authority is being questioned by some people. There is some people who think that these super apostles are better than Paul. And he just says this line, I am untrained as a speaker. As he's saying, I've not gone to Bible college, to seminary, no, because they don't exist at that time. Paul was a gifted Jewish scholar and would have extensive biblical knowledge. So why is he saying he's untrained? Well, actually, he's talking about the context of the time. And in the context of the time, this was a world where there were people who would perform and they would speak and act in particular ways everywhere. There was the philosophers who would come into public squares and speak. And they wouldn't just speak. They would speak in these dramatic ways with incredible hand gestures. And they could build an argument. And it was just mesmerizing. This was the entertainment of the day. But we also know that this is how politics were done. In ancient Greece, this is where democracy comes from. And how democracy worked then is that anyone who was sort of a, a free man, not everyone had the vote, women, slaves, different people didn't have the vote, but the free men or the free citizens of cities like Athens could come to a great public square and how they did politics is you could just make comments on the issues of the day. And how it worked was several thousand people would turn up and like anyone can take the stage and you could argue your political point. And the ones that were the most persuasive weren't necessarily the best arguments. They were the people who could perform it with the most emotion. 
But this wasn't just the only performance going on in ancient Greece. Everything was a performance. Funerals were performances. Feasts were performances. Marriages were performances. This was a world of acting where you went to someone's dinner party and you performed in a particular way and they performed to you. In a sense, the ancient Greek uh, theatres give us this concept of the mask. They would often perform in masks. And so the ancient Greeks actually gave to the world this stage. In many ways, this is, where, this is theatre. Well, not many ways. This is where theatre, as we understand it, comes from. But that concept is not like that then brought performance into the world. Rather, everything was a performance and the stage naturally emerged in that world. So Paul's speaking into that. He's speaking into a culture where everything is performance and everything is performative. And this is where the line about the super apostles comes in. Paul is in a culture where everything is performance, but a kind of pressured performance where you can't really be yourself. And the most impressive at performing are the most important. And so Paul is going against the grain of the culture here. He's doing something very different. And this is why he says in 2 Corinthians 3 to 5, chapter 3, verse 5, I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. He was not doing the performance fireworks of the day, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith <coughs> might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. He's carefully ensuring that the gospel presentation is not coming from incredible performance and theatrics, but it's actually coming from the power of the Holy Spirit. So that people don't go, wow, Paul is incredible. He's the hot new performer in wherever city he is in the Greco-Roman world. But rather that there is something that God is doing that's bigger than a human here. And I think he's making this change and he's going in this direction because the very change that occurred in his life had come from an encounter with the presence of God, like Moses, in the wilderness. On a road to Syria, Damascus, he encounters the risen Jesus. This is why he writes in 1 Corinthians 9, 1, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus, our Lord? That's where his authority comes from, not his ability to perform. And this encounter in the wilderness transforms Paul from a persecutor to a pillar of the church. And this happens in an encounter with God in the wilderness where literally through that process, scales literally fall from his eyes. And so Paul is doing something incredibly countercultural in his time because of an encounter with God in the wilderness. In 2001, I watched a documentary which had a massive influence on me. It was a documentary by Douglas Rushkoff, a media writer from New York, and he did a number of things and read a number of his books. And in 2001, he came out with a documentary and it was actually played on uh, Frontline on PBS in the US and it was called The Merchants of Cool. And in this documentary, he talked about how teenagers at that time and children were being marketed to in a particular way that had never happened before in history. And that actually what? Their desire for freedom, for experimentation, for pleasure, to a self-definition, for identity was actually being exploited by corporations. And the whole documentary explores this. 
And there's this particular scene that I remember stuck with me. They'd followed a young girl who was 13, who was all of a sudden emerging into this new world where things were being done differently in terms of how things were marketed to young people. And there's a particular party that is happening that I think MTV were putting on for these youth so that they could sort of see how that they, they operated so they could basically learn how to sell them things. And this 13-year-old girl is dancing and Rushkoff makes this observation that at this point, media has sold all of these performances to young people. But the way this young girl, 13, and her friends are dancing is they're now putting a performance on for the camera. And what Rushkoff is arguing at this point is that the world was moving into a new era where instead of like, here's the big blockbuster that everyone would just get their like money in the 1950s and go to the local cinemas and just watch it and just receive, that there now was a loop. And he calls it, Rushkoff calls it a feedback loop where we see performances, but we now are also performing. No longer are people passively just receiving media and radio and television, that we are now also, in a sense, on the stage. The performance feedback loop has created again a new stage. And from 2001, what has increased, and this is pre-social media as we understand it today, so it was already happening. Internet was just sort of, you know, starting its big move. But social media, digital cameras, everything has expanded this incredibly. Continually, we now think of ourselves with the possibility to broadcast, in a sense, everywhere is a stage. And so we are back in ancient Greece. But this creates two problems that are becoming more and more apparent in our time. The first one is that if you're always performing, when you're doing something, if that's everywhere, you do not encounter people as they are because they're always performing. The masks of the ancient Greek theater are back and they're not just Snapchat filters. They're actually a kind of persona that we put to others. And if everyone's performing and you don't get to encounter other people, it also means that often then you'll perform, you'll put on a mask and you don't show yourself because you also must, you must maintain the performance. And what this does is it leads to a kind of loneliness. Now, the psychologist Robert Wies actually talked about two kinds of loneliness. There's social loneliness where you just simply do not have enough relationships and people in your life and, and you're just deficient in your relationships and perhaps you're super isolated, you don't know anyone. Someone living on a desert island by themselves has social isolation in extreme. But Wies talked about as well there was another kind of emotional, oh sorry, loneliness. They called it emotional loneliness. And an emotional loneliness is that you can have relationships. You can actually have a lot of relationships. You can have a lot of social connections, but you feel a sense of emotional distance from people. And this is painful because you're like, man, I've got a lot of relationships and I still feel lonely. And so what actually happens is the culture of performance, when you're always wearing masks and you have to perform for other people and you feel like you can never encounter people as they really are and you can't be yourself as you really are, this is really what I think is behind a lot of our culture of anxiety, social difficulty, the sense that you may go to something, but you come away filled with a kind of tension. 
because you can't really be who you are and you wonder if the people that you're talking to are who they really are. So the first thing it does is this generates loneliness. And I've been reading about loneliness this week and it's staggering. Loneliness is exponentially increasing across the world. When I was younger, people used to talk about, you know, the West and loneliness and in other cultures there's larger connected groups. And that's true, but that is rapidly declining. I was reading this week, the stats from like Asia are unbelievable, but it's even moving South America, Africa. Loneliness is increasing all across the world. And I think this is one of the reasons because a lot of those people are still around people. There's a sense that we're together, but alone. The other issue that this raises, this culture of performance, is there's two meanings to the word performance. There's performance where I can give a theatrical performance on stage. I can be performing a role to be some kind of person in front of other people. But then there's the word performance that you might use about the performance of an engine or the performance of an insurance company. And this is a different kind of performance where you're measured on how well you are performing according to a set of standards. Now, there was a big change in the world in the last 30 years. And one of the things that happened in the last 30 years was this concept of efficiency and performance grew all throughout societies. And there are different places. My dad was working for RMIT in the 1990s, and he was retrenched. I've spoken to other people in this church whose, whose parents, perhaps you went through that, where different kinds of things, uh, institutions, uh, organizations, there were job slashes, and all of a sudden new KPIs came in, and the whole mantra of the day was high performance, efficiency, how can we get better performance here? And we can debate, and you can debate if you want at lunch, whether that was a right thing or not. But what actually I think has happened is that's gone beyond the bounds of just politics and making institutions perform better. And it's actually come into individual life. Because the idea, and I, I went to high school, and I remember just when I started high school, basically what happened in Victoria was every district where there was like five high schools, they said, we're only going to have four. And so the high schools had to compete. And the high schools had to compete with each other as to who could graduate the most students. And there was a bunch of high schools shut down um, across the states. And that idea of competition also then seeped into our everyday lives. And so just as the high school or the, the medical institution or the company or the university or the departments within a corporation had to compete against each other, that dribbled into our world where we were continually competing with each other. And actually, competition became one of the socially organizing principles of our world. And you've got competition. That means you're also having to perform at a particular level all the time. And it goes into everything. You have to perform if you're a young mum in this particular way. And you've got this standard that you're constantly measuring yourself against. And you live in a world where then you've got these feedback loops of stages where not only are you criticizing yourself, you're going online and other people are putting a sort of social mask to you of how well they're doing. And it just creates this incredible exhaustion. 
And I just gave you one example. It can be the two guys I think of who I sat next to in a cafe a couple of years ago who just sat and for an hour and a half talked about every muscle that they were building on their back in the most unbelievable detail. That even doctors, it was beyond the level of doctors' understanding of atomy, autonomy. And I'm just thinking, you guys are just sitting here trying to outdo each other at how many muscles you've got. And it's just like, I'm exhausted listening to you. And I have to live you, let alone do what you do. The people who virtue signal politically, the people who are against the virtue signalers and are virtue signaling by being against virtue signaling. Everything from how you do this to the people who, who, there's just so many examples I could go into. This idea of competition goes into every crevice and kind of different identity you could have. And where this leads to is we're told we live in a culture of freedom, but actually what we're experiencing is an exhaustion of a kind of self-oppression. And just as we go back to the ancient Greek society of the stage being everywhere, we return to a kind of ancient culture of shame. Now, people talk about honor, shame, culture. And I've thought about this a lot. Have we returned to an honor, shame culture? There's lots of cultures in the world that have that. You may be from a culture like that yourself. But actually think more. I don't think it is an honor, shame culture. I think it's a shame performance culture. Well, you start to feel shame because you cannot live up to the performance that you've set for yourself, that society set for yourself. New performances you keep finding out. You know, you think you know how to like mow the lawns and all of a sudden you can get onto YouTube and find 700 videos of like the world's best lawn mowers who are going, mate, if you're mowing your lawn like this, don't. Just stop it straight away. <laughs> and then there's like a paid ad, you know, come up. And because of shame, because of shame getting into the social system, worse stuff begins to happen. People can't deal with hard stuff. We have things like ghosting, where because I can't take down my mask, I don't just see me, so I'm just going to break off relationship. This goes throughout relationships, dating, family, church. And we see the pushback against this, everything from people giving up to competition, to articles in the papers about people going goblin mode where they're just like, I just don't care. I'm just going like to wear whatever. It's like coming out of COVID, just goblin mode. <laughs> in China, the whole phenomenon of the lying flat culture where young people are saying, I'm just done. I'm not competing anymore. The unemployment figures for China came out this week and they're massive and they actually think that it's possibly much more. Massive pushback. This is not just a Western thing. Quiet quitting. The new fad of go slow at work and just try your minimum best. There's this sense of, there is this pushback against the culture of performance and no one's naming it, but it's everywhere and it's basically not working. And there's this danger that you never arrive because even goblin mode or dropping out or lying flat culture or whatever the heck you're doing becomes a performance in of itself. How do we know about this giving up? Because people are making TikTok videos about it and it's a performance of not being into the performance. And so we just remain in a constant state of unsettledness, never being home. The pressure to perform and self-create is endless, even when we're not trying to perform and self-create. This is why I think Moses in Midian is instructive. 
Moses has lost his place in the Egyptian court. He has his destiny that God has over his life. He is picked up out of the water by the princess. But at this point, it's just gone bad. He's seen this Egyptian and this anger rises up in him. But instead of acting the way of God and following God's plan for redemption, he strikes out and with violence kills an Egyptian overlord. And he finds himself in exile, not home. A foreigner in a foreign land. And he's fled the highly performative Egyptian courtly culture where everything was watched. Pharaoh appeared on a platform. Everyone wore these elaborate clothes and everyone was in exact social hierarchy. So he's out of that, but he's isolated. There's a little clue the scriptures give us. And remember I talked about little priestly things. Moses' mother from the tribe of Levi. What says here, Moses all of a sudden encounters this family, the priest of Midian, marries into that family. Moses can't get away from this priestly thing. Just keep watching that track as we move through the story. But then there's this moment. Moses is out in the wilds. No longer is he surrounded by all of the peering eyes of the Egyptian court. He's just out nowhere with sheep. And God's doing something. God is moving him from the stage. And to move him from the stage is moving to the wilderness. And what's interesting is, before we even get to the burning bush in the presence of God, God's already moving his pieces. God is setting the pieces in place for his great act of salvation. And the first thing he does is to move Moses into a pillar. So you don't become a pillar in one moment. God is working in Moses' life to build a pillar. And dare I say, I think he's moving in many of your lives. And even before the encounter with the burning bush, the extraordinary deliverance that's going to come through what God does in the life of Moses, emerges from the context of Moses' lived faithfulness in the ordinary. He's out there just looking after sheep. So one thing I just want to let you know is that pillars are not shaped by performance, but by presence. There is a danger that you hear these talks and this series, and I'm going to try hard, I'm going to be that. But actually they emerge from a sense of God's presence. And I just want to give you three ways that that happens, that I think this is instructive, this story. The first one is that what we see is that pillars are formed in the hidden place. Pillars are formed in the hidden place. Verse 4, chapter 3 says this, When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him within the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. In encountering the presence of God, we see Moses as he really is. Moses, here I am, not a mask. Moses says, here I am. This is a man who's been humbled. He's lost the court. He's lost his privilege. He's lost the position and status he has. And to encounter the presence of God, you have to take off those masks. You have to say no to the system where you are competing to try and place yourself in some kind of order, comparing to others. And most of you I know are not doing that from a prideful thing. Maybe some of you are, and we always need to confess. But I think actually this is where it's exploitative. Many of us feel this sense and this pressure to compare all the time, and it's crushing us. And what we see here is Moses, who is crushed, 
He's humbled. He's brought low. He's brought before an audience of one. God says, do not come any closer. Take off your sandals for the place you are standing is holy ground. Just think of that action, taking off his shoes. Moses has seen the Egyptian court. He's seen the incredible things of Egypt. But what God is saying here in this patch of dirt near that Mount Horeb in the middle of nowhere is that this is actually holy ground. And did you know that the scriptures point to the fact that the priests would actually take off their shoes when they would go and, 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 and serve the presence of God in the tabernacle and the temple? Again, the priestly theme. Moses doesn't see himself as a priest, but God is orchestrating things and shaping him. There is no performance in the wilderness. I'm going to say that again. If you want to move away from the stage, the wilderness is often the place that God does it, and the wilderness is not always fun. Mark Scarlatta says this, Moses is not called into God's service because he's eloquent in speech or because of his political savvy. Link back to Paul. Instead, he is prepared to lead God's people by seeking out lost sheep, binding their woods, leading them to pasture where they might grow and thrive. All of this, however, takes place in the isolation of the wilderness, where there's no one to praise his sacrificial acts or lord his selfless and tireless care of the flock. This is the biblical proving ground for those who will lay down their lives for God's people. Lay down their lives. Yes, we're being crushed by these expectations, this competition, this high performance thing. But there's also an element that we must be real with that part of us wants it. Part of us wants to achieve in that area. Part of us wants to be step up a notch or two. Part of us wants to get the recognition of our peers and see the audience. It speaks to something of our brokenness. But once the encounter happens in, I'll just finish the quote, this is the biblical proving ground for those who will lay down their lives for God's people in the same manner that Yahweh himself is willing to do. Moses learns to lay down his life because that's what Yahweh does. And this is the beginning of the salvation history. Like, yes, the people are coming out of Egypt, but where this is all leading is Jesus in his early 30s, in the garden, not my will but yours, giving up his life. Second point, a pillar's influence comes from intimacy with God. When you are so intimate with the stage, the stage has brought intimacy into places intimacy shouldn't be. We know too much about celebrities. We know too much about other people's thoughts. We know too much about the emotional landscape of the world. We can look up information that really we don't need to know. Pornography, everything is too much intimacy outside of where intimacy should be. God has places for intimacy and they're clear and there's boundaries. But what has actually happened in the world of the stage is that intimacy has just been placed everywhere. And it's actually ruining us. So a pillar is not formed by the overabundance of intimacy in the world. A pillar is actually formed by intimacy with God. And this is key because the emotional loneliness, the pressure, and the sense of competition that many feel in our cultural performance can only be healed, only be healed, by the encounter with the source of love, God himself. And at this point, what's happening is, just as Hosea speaks of being wooed in the wilderness, Moses is being wooed in the wilderness. He's being called out of the oppressive, pharaonic, that's a great word, pharaonic 
of Pharaoh, system of Egypt, into a new way of living in God. From this faithfulness that he's been learning as a shepherd to a new kind of faithfulness in God. And I just want to just say this. There have been people who have been on a journey who have been learning faithfulness in the last season and God's been doing beautiful things, but that continually is an invitation to step into deeper faithfulness. And this trust, this new way must be rooted in intimacy with God. As a pillars are built upon a foundation of intimacy with God, a pillar must have an architectural foundation under it and that's what intimacy is. And this is the shift from performance to worship. So much, I hate to say, of a culture of worship in church in the last 20 years has been often based on a culture of performance. It's seeped into the church. But I know many friends who are worship well-known people. There's a sense that God is calling his people back and they're calling the worshipers back to a true sense of worship. That's part of the renewal that God's doing in the world at the moment. And what this is, is the shift from performance of constantly feeling you're on stage, watched, surveilled, for an unforgiving crowd, to worship, which is being in the presence of God, the audience of one. And lastly, point three, pillars are built for purpose. This isn't just about another experience, another act of self-creation. Don't just head off to the wilderness now and try and make this happen. And so you can get to some sense of peace and be freed from the oppression of constantly being watched. No, pillars are built for purpose. Rob Bremer, coming soon to a soul care conference near you, (laughs) says this. When we show up in in the public place and God shows up with us, it's because we're marked by his presence in the private place. We'll begin to see more of what God can do. We must walk with such sensitivity to God's presence and God's voice that we carry God's presence into our God-given assignments. Moses doesn't stay in the wilderness. Moses doesn't just stay in front of the burning bush until his last days. Actually, Moses is being formed as a pillar because he's actually got an assignment coming and there's going to be influence. There's going to be a kind of podium, but he's going to step onto that, not as someone doing that in human power as a performance, but actually someone who's been marked by the presence of God. And everyone in this room has a God-given assignment. Whether you're 14 or 114, and I'm sure there's no one here who's 114, but every one of you has a God-given assignment. Some of you may be big. Some of you may be small. And he's asking you to be a pillar in that place and to do that coming from being marked by his presence in that private place. The stage is public and there are moments for the stage. I mean, I have a, I, I, I'm not going to get up here and say that I don't have a platform. I have a platform that God has opened up for me. And I get to speak in places and sometimes at, at, you know, online or in places. But the whole time I know, the minute that that departs from me being marked by what God is doing in the private place, it falls over. And the flip side, I know of getting to speak in places like the Royal Albert Hall and crazy, I spoke in literally like, this is the Dolly Parton Arena in Nashville, Tennessee, where there's a Taylor Swift room. It's like the biggest room I've ever been in my life. Spoke there. But I know it's the prayer room where no one else is. It's the link between those two. So verse 10, God says, so go, now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. 
All of us have influence. We're all giving off influence. It's either toxic or it's God-directed or something in between. That doesn't work. That's a sentence that just did not work. And I'm going to delete that. What I'm trying to say there is either we do that with God or we don't. We're always influencing. And Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. God wants to go with you. God wants to be with you. God wants to go with Red Church. So we're to align our influence with the purposes and presence of God. This is how he builds us into being pillars. So this is how I just want to end. I think God's done a lot in this. I just have a sense. I think this has spoken to some deep stuff in people. I think there's some stuff he, he's going to actually play out over the next little while in people to reflect on. But I just want to just end with that one thing that Moses says in response. He's called out of the platform of Egypt I get the band to come up as I do this. And just his response, the starting point is simply this. He doesn't at that moment have to go, I am, I am a pillar, instantly formed. There's a lot of work that needs to be done in Moses' life. But the journey out of the exploitative platform of continual pressure to be performing towards others begins with simply Moses' response to the presence of God. Here I am. Here I am. God defines who he is. God is Yahweh, like I am. Humans don't get to define me. And Moses' response to that is, here I am. Here I am in my ugliness of wanting to compete, of wanting to be seen, of wanting to prove myself, of wanting to like look to everything by God when I need direction. Here I am. Here I am. I want to begin this journey of being able to lay down my life. And I feel like this moment, that needs to be the response. In this moment of worship, here I am. Let's stand and let the Holy Spirit move in you as you respond to him in that way during this worship. <laughs>